The following show is being broadcasted from an undisclosed location. Two former special operators have combined their badassery and now sharing it with the world. They ain't alive no more. All with a beer and a smile. This is the Savage Actual Podcast. And now your hosts combat vets with 20 plus deployments between the two of them and enough testosterone to operate the power grid of Los Angeles. Savage Actual. Now your hosts, Jason and Patrick. What's up everybody? Thanks for joining the Savage Actual channel. More importantly, the podcast. I'm here with my co-host, Mr. Patrick. What's your last name again, dude? Me? This is Patrick Maltrup. Apparently, Jason hit his fucking head five minutes ago. I like to fuck with him. (laughs) But uh, yeah, Uh, we have a special guest we've got to know over the last few years by the name of Michael Sarujas, who is a uh, senior lead game designer uh, and a just been in the gaming realm for about 15, 20 years now on behind the scenes, behind the the Wizard of Oz curtain, making things happen for uh, for guys like me that love to play games. So it's a pleasure to have you here, brother. Thank you, man. Yeah, it's uh, it's a pleasure to be here. I'm glad we're doing this. Um, I, you oversold me a bit. Only like nine and a half years, I would say. I, I got into the industry, <laughs> like, but I would like to think years he's been doing this. <laughs> yeah, but, which is okay because that, I take that as flattery. So thank you for 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 uh for overstating my experience yeah but i um yeah i'm I'm coming up on about a decade now at this point nice yeah Yeah. so for the listeners out there this will be number two of the uh kind of the the developer diaries that we're doing to really bridge the gap between the player base and the heart and soul and the tears the blood and sweat that's going behind the scenes to make these games so we've uh befriended this this awesome human being and uh We've uh, luckily shared a lot of time together the last two years, so we're excited to have them. So I appreciate that, man. Thank you. This podcast episode is sponsored by Iron Fire Brewing. Iron Fire Brewing is a Southern California favorite, creating craft beers from the finest ingredients. Iron Fire Brewing creates unique beers with classic tiki drink-inspired flavors, amazing lagers, and more. Iron Fire Brewing can be shipped directly to your home by going to craftshack.com and search for Iron Fire Brewing. Yeah. So, you know, you've been doing this thing for a career. So how how in the hell did you get into it, man? Like, when did this start for you, this interest, this affinity towards gaming? It's a great first question. I think that I... I think for for you know most video game developers, it starts with the interest in gaming. I'm, I'm pretty sure that's usually the case, uh, almost certainly on the creative and probably even on the other you know more business development or production, like all these other sides. Like I, I think that's usually the case. Uh, I was an only child as a, as a kid. Uh, didn't have many brothers or sisters to run around with. Uh, I grew up in New Jersey. Uh, moved at one point when I was young, and both my parents worked. My uh, my dad is a like a primary care doctor and my mom uh, she was a uh, an icu uh, nurse but then she became a psychotherapist so i just had a lot of time to myself because <laughs> my parents were working and i didn't have anybody to fuck around with i guess so i just yeah. started playing a lot of video games that that's at least been my interpretation and my narrative uh, growing up <laughs> uh when i grew up i was trying to think about systems 
a little bit of PC. I think my first first person shooter is probably Chex Quest, which came in a bottle of Chex or a bottle of Chex, a box of Chex cereal. It was like a what? really, yeah, yeah. It was, it was, um, because you guys know Doom, right? Like the first yeah. Doom 1994 yeah, yeah. or whatever. I'm pretty sure it was built on that engine, uh, but it was funny because like they couldn't have it be violent. So it was a CD that came in a, a, a box of uh, Chex, not Chex Mix, sorry, the, the Chex cereal. Chex and it cereal, came with, yeah. as if to more accurately date it to the 90s, it came with like America Online 3.0 or something yeah. like that. <laughs> yeah. And uh, when you, you were like, uh, you were killing these like silly green aliens uh, because it couldn't be violent, uh, but it was also the Doom engine and framework and design, you had to shoot them with like, portal juice so you would shoot them with these guns that would just teleport them back to their home world or something they weren't dying don't worry very, very just gently, they just went back to their home world very <laughs> very gently they landed in a hammock and were given a, a cold drink yeah. and they were good to go you're like no, nausea. no nothing they just go straight yeah there. <laughs> that was probably my first uh one of my first games <laughs> yeah right that uh, is hilarious like, i yeah. yeah is that I, I wonder if that's a collectible now you think you could find that cd and like stuff like yeah. that i bet you that thing's worth some money now yeah i, I bet it could be I, I did see that like on the unreal engine 4 or something uh there was a uh like a remake that people did uh and it might have even been like a proper release by like a dev studio that had some money behind it i have to look it up but if you what, look up what was like the name Ch of the game checks quest the the protagonist looks awesome he's just a giant like square man and it but his suit is like a, a checks piece like a piece of the cereal like this is all wild. real anybody yeah. who's watching i'm sure you have viewers that played that or know it it's all real and it's just it's I, waffled for sure i think, I think it's bad for them, armor i don't know how that would work but yeah i think most of our viewers are pretty young so you, you probably lost them at cd and that actually stands for compact disc for all you listeners uh, okay maybe you're right yeah <laughs> is that yeah dude yeah. that's it <laughs> and the spoon that's right the spoon was the melee uh was the melee uh weapon because you can't like punch somebody with your fist or hit them with a crowbar you have to scoop them out that shit's that's making right. me that hungry, is freaking hilarious <laughs> isn't it all right yeah i will send you a picture of the checks quest game from uh his his box of checks mix that are yeah. cereal that's pretty funny and, and another one for you guys real quick uh the Marine Corps, I think also in the 90s, made a version of Doom. It was a mod of Doom. It was on the engine to do training in the U.S. Marines. You can look that up. I never saw like a version of it, but they were doing it to do like, I don't know, uh, small unit tactics, CQB stuff. Oh, you know that? Have you heard of with that? The, with, the with the large screen or whatever? Uh, I think it was actually like just a bunch of LAN computers hooked up and it was like they were playing Doom but they modified the rule set because they were practicing. I've, I don't know if this is true, just full disclosure, but I read about it online on like the wiki and like apparently it was something that somebody put some money behind and they did it. But I mean, your viewers I can, can maybe validate that. I don't know. I could understand. I can understand that. I mean, I'm sure they probably tested it out and after a while we're like, yeah, it really isn't doing anything. Our dudes hey, are, yeah, Jason, right. What was the, uh, what was that, that mild, I mean, it wasn't mild. VR. What was the big screen thing? Where you had the uh, your rifle and there'd be scenarios and they would react to your gunfire and stuff. What was that called? Yeah, I can't remember, dude. I, I, I knew. I, I want to say like I I Tams or something like that. I almost took a job running one of those. Uh, it, it was like on the job thread. Um, 
Yeah, I forgot. I went through it. I went through it with uh, Call yeah. Fire, and I went through it with uh, um, some weapons. It's, a, it's pretty crazy, Mike. It's basically you're in a room. There's a massive screen with a projector, <laughs> and they have all these guns. You have M16s. They have uh, hmm. the yeah. the 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 pistols the Beretta pistols and they're all hooked to gas and I don't yep. know how they there there must be something instead of a bolt or whatever I don't know if there's any kind of like IR laser or something that you yeah can, but you'll have somebody who comes out and you can shoot it like they react it's very weird I don't know how it works but yeah it's it'd be interesting if they had something like that with a I, video yeah. game yeah I, cool. I, I think I I think I've seen that uh, I've seen it in the context of they're teaching cops uh, how to like escalation of force, right? Like when do you okay. draw? Wait yeah. to see. Wait for the person to do something. It's like a, a teaching tool for that. Uh, yep. Yep. I think I've seen it for mo- the military too. The military application looked more like kind of a light gun game, you know, like at the arcade. But uh, I only saw like a clip or two of it. It's cool. But I got I got sidetracked. Sorry. Uh, so, uh, you went from your your Chex Mix video game to uh... yeah. I, I was playing Chex Mix. I was playing Nintendo sixty four, Star Fox. For oh, yeah. um, all those Nintendo 64. That was like my generation. I was born in 1990. I just turned 33 a couple weeks ago. Uh, I think one of the most inspiring games to me was uh, probably Half-Life 1. Like in the late 90s, I got really into that. Still play that and the mods for it uh, to this day on occasion at least. Uh, that was that was like I think what solidified my interest in FPS games specifically. And then there were games that you know were mods of that like Firearms and uh, Day of Defeat and other ones that got me really into, I guess, military shooters. And then I was playing games like the original Delta Force games, uh, the original Ghost Recon, Rogue Spear, just like I was very much a tactical shooter gamer of that era. And I played other games. You know, I was into Counter-Strike, of course, and StarCraft. Uh, these are all like big names for a gamer of my generation and taste, I guess. But uh, eventually that led to me just having like a, a bit of a, a leaning toward tactical shooters to the point where I'm like, Maybe maybe I could make a career out of this when I when I hit school. But that was like how I got into gaming was why well, I went to the University of Delaware. Uh, I studied uh, mass communications and uh, German, and I was involved at the radio station. And I liked doing like voiceover stuff. I was the production director, which meant I had uh, actually founded a team of people that would help me do writing and promotions and PSAs to go on air. I didn't have a show, but I did like the promotions for it. And it was fun and creative. I got to write silly things and. Then you know, other straightforward things. And then I just had this idea like, well, I like these video games uh, and I had this radio experience. Why don't I try to combine these things and make a career out of it? I'll be a voice actor and see what that's like. And that kind of was my start of my career right there. Yeah. So the mass communications, that's, that's, I'm not super, I've heard that before. I'm not super familiar with that sort of I don't know how you want to say it, like uh, major uh, field of study, whatever that kind of study. Thing. Yeah, that's a good way to explain it. Your field yeah. of study. What what exactly does that have to do? Is that specifically for like radio and TV? Uh, no, it wasn't. To, to be honest with you, like that was me at, at that age. I really didn't know what I wanted to do completely. Right. I kind of people I kind thought of to myself, you know, yeah, and and I was of a my parents. Their, their philosophy was like, look. Um, I was very fortunate. For, for one, I'm privileged, lucky, blessed, fortunate, whatever word you want to use, I was that. Because they basically said, look, we will, let's get you an education. It's okay if you're not sure, like, you'll figure it out. Uh, but I got to a kind of point in school, I guess, where I'm like, I still don't really know, but I have to choose a major. 
and it was at that point and that wasn't a I wasn't a shitty student or anything like I, my grades were fine I wasn't like partying and fucking around or anything if anything I was the opposite I was a fucking nerd you know like I uh I didn't um I, I just wasn't sure I wasn't sure what I wanted to do but I knew that you know I gotta make the best of this opportunity that's been given to me uh, and I liked the radio station so I chose something that seemed close to that and that was the mass communications field of gotcha. study which is kind of like a it's like sociology, but like focused on media. I like studied stuff about TV broadcast, the internet. I took a course that was like learning how to do TV production. I took another course that was about the not internet history, but just like uh, different uh, types of like mass media and how they spread and, and how they're uh, how they're used. Uh, advertising courses, I think, public speaking stuff like that. Uh, okay. Honestly, like not a lot of it was too connected to. The radio station which was more technical that was just volunteer like i just volunteered for for all that stuff that was an extracurricular uh, but i just i just to me it was the closest connection and it was a a solid ba i guess you could say or right yeah not 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 an associate it's like a bachelor of arts i guess uh, right right but um so you said you got into yeah. you got into sort of voiceover stuff is this is this post-college now you're you're like hey yeah. i'm gonna try and follow the the trajectory of being a voice actor and what yeah how, how'd all that work out uh i think again i got very lucky um i i did my thing in school i, I came out of uh, the university of delaware i went back home i was going through a tough period at that point in my life uh, bad a difficult breakup dog died uh some, you know some uh, some other stuff uh and i thought to myself like shit like i gotta get a to get a job but i gotta figure out what i'm gonna do with my life because i was still in that space but i knew that i had this like voiceover thing that was interesting to me and i wanted to like dig into that more and figure out what that was uh it didn't help that i was not in los angeles or new york city or yeah. even philly right like i grew up near philadelphia that was the closest big city to me being like a central-ish new jersey person and I just thought to myself, like, uh, what am I going to do? So I, I took a job at a restaurant, had a little bit of money coming in. I could live at home. Like, my parents are fine with that. I, I took advantage of that to save. And I just was like, I'll just pursue this game development stuff. I got uh, I got pretty involved with a couple different mod projects at that time. The uh, the first one would be, like, a Half-Life 2 mod called Underhell. Underhell was, like, a narrative action horror first-person shooter that took half-life 2 but then was modified to be like a unique story unique art unique all these things and there i was just i was started out doing voiceover but then i got kind of involved in writing and uh, casting even it got to the point where i was like proposing scenes to the creator uh, who's a good friend of mine with whom i worked at new world interactive on insurgency and dave infamy and all that jeremy falcon prey uh and he and i uh, you know, we got along well and he was okay with the suggestions I made. So I just kept on like enjoying the game dev side of it. Like beyond the voiceover, I was writing dialogue. I was doing, um, I was doing like some community stuff here and there, a teensy bit of design as far as the gun stuff went. And then I eventually just got to a point where I thought like, this is like, this is a free project, but like people are interested in it. a lot of people are downloading it. And I talked to my parents and I said, I don't know if this can be a career for me it's like the voiceover and then some other stuff but like can i just keep living here and exploring it i'll keep working in the restaurant and they're like yeah whatever like you can stay here as long so as you where want. where were you going to do this was this uh because i would assume at the time you know everybody nowadays is so spread out and it's easy to for everybody to sort of connect online i would think what what year was this 
let's see. Uh, I must have come back. 2013, I guess. Like, this is 2013. Oh, jeez. Oh, uh, yeah. That was what? in like <laughs> Afghanistan then? Okay. So, 2013, <laughs> and you're – were you were – you, like actually traveling to an office or somewhere to, to be able to do all this stuff? No, not even Su- surprisingly enough. Whoa. Like <laughs> I was in the basement of my parents' place. Uh, we took the Christmas <laughs> tree out of the Christmas tree closet, put a bunch of foam up and I was doing voiceover in there. It was, uh, That's it awesome. pretty well. Cause I was in a basement acoustically. Right. It was great. Like it, it worked pretty well. And this is something that like, even before remote work became so common now, it was pretty, um, like it, it was to be expected, kind of. Like it wasn't that weird. I still would have fared better in Los Angeles or New York to get voiceover work. Sure, but like, yeah. I was expect. I went. I took a train to New York City for like a course. I, like I explored other different ways of making this career work, or just exploring the career itself. But I kept coming back to the game dev side. Actually, I'm realizing now exactly ten years ago and two days ago, Underhell the mod like came out in its first chapter, uh, and like. We just had an anniversary live stream a couple couple days ago, and that was so. It must have been almost exactly ten years ago that the first like serious project I worked on released. Where I I didn't do like I did like the voiceover and the writing. Like I wasn't uh, I wasn't doing level design or something more substantial to the content of the project. Right. But I was involved very much in these smaller ways. Is the best way I would say it. So yeah, that was ten years ago that came out almost exactly. Uh, huh. Yeah. That's very and cool. So, what was, was the up. yeah? What was the transition now to the? What was the next game that you worked on? Because obviously, like you said, you did the next game that you got involved in. Was that voiceover stuff, or was that a little bit more on the development side? Since you now you have a little bit more experience with the the writing aspect of it and all that. Yeah, I would say I, I right after that was the part where. That would bring us to Insurgency, I guess, and Black Mesa kind of at the same time. So mm-hmm. there was a game called... Basically, I worked with Jeremy on this this uh, game, this mod project called Underhell. He took a job at New World Interactive as a level designer. Jeremy was like the director, the writer, everything behind Underhell, and he was a really talented level designer. So he took a job as a level designer specifically, I believe it was, on Insurgency. He like made the tutorial mission stuff which i did a voice for so we got to work together again there basically he said hey like i played this game it's an early access it's called insurgency it's tactical shooter which i know you like and we like together because there was some inspiration there for under hell like with the modern shooting mechanics and stuff and uh he said to me like but but i noticed when i play this game like there's no voices in it Uh, i'm a i think we applied at the same time or he applied and he recommended me i can't remember but he basically said like why don't you send them your demo reel so I sent them a demo reel is just like a one to two minute recording of like different voices you can do. That was something I got together as a person trying to be a voice actor. You're smiling. <laughs> I'm just laughing because I, I no, have no, I, I, oh, no. I laugh about something like this because I'm just like, what would a demo reel like? And you say like as a voice actor, like, are you doing like Mickey Mouse voices? Are you yelling? <laughs> well, like what? What? What, give, me, got, give me an example of what some voice acting like clips would be. I just find it, I find it a little yeah. bit humorous. I, I can send you one. Basically, the, the goal of a demo reel. <laughs> this is just like what I, what I, I can send you my demo reel. Like basically, the goal is to show you have a good range. You can do a lot oh. of different voices. You're a good actor, but also like, in in the terms of the person listening to the demo reel, 
don't waste my time. This better be one to two minutes tops. So that's right, that's right. what a demo reel is. You condense your talent as a human being in this profession into a very small <laughs> span of time, basically. That's interesting. I think it's it's just something that I have zero experience with, and it just sounds it sounds a little bit humorous because like having to make voices and just make up stuff or whatever you may. And I'm sure a lot of it is probably some of the stuff that you had from the games that you've done, you know, the, the oh, but, experts or clips from that. But, mm-hmm. but you're right though. It was, that. yeah. I will rather, I guess I should say I felt the same way you did because I, at that point I was making a demo reel. I didn't work on any games yet. I was like, so what do I do? Like Mickey Mouse? Like what? Impersonations yeah. are like. The thing that popped into my head is like, yeah. when somebody tells me you're making up voices, I'm like, cartoon voices? Or like, what kind of voices are you yeah. making up? You know? He, he, he sent was, me the, the demo reel, man. And it was, you know, I think you you dipped into your uh, Northeastern, you know, I imagine one of the guys sounded like he was like fucking selling hot dogs on the side of a goddamn busy street. <laughs> Like get into an argument with someone else and it was like almost like yeah. this i'd imagine this old italian guy like with a cigarette hanging on his lips fucking talking like it was pretty <laughs> cool he sent it to me i listened to it i was like that's pretty badass man nice. it's funny because i can't i can't of course on the me thinking about this as a professional thing obviously there's tons of people who make extraordinary amounts of money as voice voice overs or voice actors related to commercials and films and tv and the video game aspect and of course, there's a huge range of, of voices and things that you hear that probably don't match up to the person that's doing it. So it's but just, again, yeah. ha- never having any sort of experience in that. It does sound a little bit humorous, you know, so yeah. you're like, like, why are you laughing at me? <laughs> <laughs> no, no, it's it, it, it totally. Yeah. I'm sorry. I just noticed something. I saw Jason's audio go by, but I'm not seeing any from Patrick or me. Is that OK? You're, you're OK. You're good. Yeah. OK. Sorry. Yeah. I just wanted yeah, to yeah. check. No, it's all good, man. No, it does weird things. Sometimes it looks like it's dead, but it's OK. It works 60 cool. percent of the time. So we're good. Good. Every time. <laughs> <laughs> I watched that again recently. Love it. Um, sorry. Uh, so, yeah, no, with some um, it's, it's in a way it's kind of validating to hear you say that, Patrick, because like when I first heard like do a demo reel, that was my thought. I was like, what do I do? Like I had to learn all those things. I just didn't. And you also like, you're putting yourself out there a lot. It's a little yeah. not embarrassing sure. Like, for sure. You feel vulnerable. Cause you're yeah. like, it's like somebody come up and you're going be funny or, or be talented, be, be a good actor. And you'd kind of have to figure it out. So like, that was part of why I went to New York city and like took a course, you know, like, but I also had to like be careful that I wasn't getting ripped off. Like I had to choose the right one. And oh, it's wow. just, it's tough being an actor. And honestly, like that whole space, made me go away from the voiceover stuff and to lean into the game development side, uh, plus some other factors that I can that I can go into. But at that point in my career, I, I Jeremy told me, hey, Insurgency is a cool game. Uh, maybe you should do voices on it. What do you think? And I said, cool, let's do it. And he and I, uh, I, like I applied at his recommendation. I sent my demo reel in. And uh, the CEO and game director uh, at the time, he's no longer there, his name's Jeremy Blum. He founded the original red orchestra game when he was like 14 years old this guy was like really really talented crazy right he was an extremely talented guy uh, who works in the industry uh he's he's not working in the industry now as far as i know but uh yeah he um he responded to my email and again like i'm not working in a restaurant man like i'm just trying to find the next thing uh, see if this is a career for me because i didn't really want to work in radio you know like it didn't feel like a viable career 
uh, and I was more passionate about this. And he emails me back really simply and says, I dig your stuff. Could you voice everybody? And I went, I, okay. Like that's, I guess that's what I'll try to do. I will. Yeah. That's when you're like, you're like every voice oh, in the yeah, video. I can do that. Yeah. Cause yeah. we had to, I had to lean in. Like this was a commercial project. It was my first commercial sure. project and it was intimidating to hear the question. Can you voice everybody? Like the, the word literally is maybe a little overused nowadays, but I mean, literally every single voice in the video game had to be me. So I had to do like four different voices of the insurgents and, and of the security forces. And I had to write all of it too and figure out like some of the triggers for like when they say stuff. And it was a lot. Uh, so, but I, I just jumped into it. I, I think I had a good idea of what they were going for. I'd played tactical shooters so much and I felt inspired by games like fear the, the first yeah. fear, which I know Jason knows, yeah. uh, which has really loud, stressed, violent voiceover, which is what the game was loud and stressful and violent and uh, battle, the new battlefield, at the time, new Battlefield games like Bad Company 2, they had a similar approach. And I thought, I'm going to just draw from that, draw from my radio experience, draw from what I know of these games and and do it. And, you know, I think it turned out OK. People do see, did seem to like it, especially because it was an indie game, you know, and, uh, you know, not, not to toot my own horn, but like I, I feel like that team was able to take uh, a genre that was like in 2013, 2014 was kind of stagnating. They didn't yes. have many games like it. I don't want to say like rebirth or revived it, but contributed to its revival. Yep. Uh, so that was a, for me as a project, big point of pride because it was my first like honest commercial swing at doing a good job at the thing I wanted to be a professional at. And then also contributed to the genre in a way that like I would enjoy as a player. Like the day it came out, I was there playing with everybody. I'm like, wow, this is, it was really, it was a really big deal. Like it was, my work has always been very meaningful to me because I was lucky enough to be presented with that opportunity. And then uh, at the same time around then, I was doing the Black Mesa thing, too. That was a, a whole other story that I can get into. But does that make sense, I guess, as far as the chronology yeah. or insurgency? Well, sure. So yeah. here's, here's a question. And, and I know this is obviously that time is the insurgency sandstorm thing has come and gone. So did that pay the bills for you? Were you able to? I mean, obviously, you said you were working in a restaurant and stuff. So did and, and that's that's I mean, now when I think about insurgency sandstorm, to me, that seems like a huge game. I mean, I know it's still tons of people play it. It's super popular. I mean, did that, like when you were doing it and you were doing the voiceover stuff, did they say, hey, this is how much we're going to pay you? Were you like super excited with whatever they offered you? I mean, did that like take you a book? I mean, I, I don't know. You know, I'm just wondering about yeah. like, what kind of money. And the reason I'm asking this is because we do have people who listen to us that are, are, are going right. to be interested in the developer stuff. And like, how did you feel about what they offered you to work on this game? And, you know, did it pay it was, the bill for you? Yeah, it, it was great. I would say at the very beginning, I was a contractor. So I was, I was just uh, okay. getting paid hourly. Uh, I was excited to get paid anything. And then on top of that, <laughs> I got paid yeah. pretty well. Like it was, they weren't shortchanging me. New World treated me fairly. They took a risk with me. Uh, but even like for taking the risk, they still paid me a fair amount. I was living at home. This was like, there was a lot of work to do. <laughs> there was a lot of voiceover in that game. And I think because I demonstrated that interest, uh, eventually it got to a point where they said, okay, like you did the contractor thing hourly. Uh, we really like working with you. And I demonstrated my interest in the game and the community. And they came to me and said, like, would you like to be the community manager? And that would be a full-time position. You're still a contractor. 
1099, whatever. I, I guess I was under 25 at the time. So in Jersey, you can like stay on your parents' health insurance, I think, until that age. I don't really remember. That was like something I was calculating in my head. But <laughs> like I could, I got to a point where I could move out of my parents' place. Uh, and then I could get my own place and get paid, you know, to full-time do this. It was a full-time wage. And I could live in Jersey and figure out, I don't know what the next step looked like for me, but like I just took that. So I took that. And then on the side, I was doing a work with a game called Black Mesa. Black Mesa was Half-Life 1, one of the games that inspired me as a kid and I loved, and I still do to this day. It was a recreation of that, but more modernized and super dedicated team, been working on it forever. Uh, I applied to be a voice actor again, because that was when I was focusing on the VO stuff, but also a writer. And I voiced and uh, I voiced and wrote for the HECU Marines, which were this like fictional I guess you would say soft like marine element that was like going into this secret research facility to to kill you know the the scientists they're the bad guys basically and the aliens were involved too so that was it was black mesa and insurgency one because this was years before sandstorm to, to be clear this was just the first insurgency uh that money combined allowed me to like yeah stop working at the restaurant and move out nice that's awesome that's really cool it's cool to hear that that you know kind of your first foray into that industry was successful you know especially yeah. something that you're you know you're like i didn't i didn't i didn't go to school specifically for that or yeah. whatever the case may be you know just sort of that your passion yeah. is something that you could uh you know make a living on that's that's pretty awesome yeah thanks man. Like yeah it was some dots, dots and things were aligned kind of at the, the right time for you, man. It could have been a longer process potentially, you know? Oh, man. Yeah. I, I don't know. And this is me being like totally candid. Like, I really don't know what I would have done otherwise at that time. Because I, I really I really wanted to get out of the home. I wanted to be self-sufficient. Um, there, Yeah. And there's a few different reasons for that. But, but yeah. uh, I might have like friggin' I think at one point I was thinking of even listing maybe maybe being an officer. I don't know. I had the college education, but yeah. I, it was never something I took very seriously. It was just something I was kind of in the back of my head, maybe as a backup plan. Cause I had a bunch of throughout all of this, by the way, I had friends that were like becoming Marines, uh, a guy that joined the Navy. He was gonna, you know, every, I had this, that environment around me. So that was like one of my contingencies, I, I guess, if the gaming thing didn't work out. And uh, it was something that I thought about, you know, kind of on the side. Uh, I'm, I'm happy that it worked out this way, but in another life, like if I didn't get that lucky uh, and that fortunate, I might have uh, I might have went a totally different path, man. I don't know what would have happened. It's uh, kind of crazy to think about, you know. But that's yeah. all life is, right? It's an aggregate of decisions. So sure. you uh, you were at the first job with uh, with Jeff for how long? Oh, with, uh, with Jeremy? Uh, Jeremy, excuse me. Yeah, you were oh, at yeah. first gig for two years, you said? Three years? Uh, actually, it went longer. So let me, I got to think about the timeline here. So there was Jeremy Falcon Prey that I worked on yes. under Hell with, mostly him. I was supporting him. Jeremy Blum was the other Jeremy mm. uh, who made Red Orchestra. He hired me to work on Insurgency, and he hired Jeremy Falcon Prey. And I guess I did voiceover. Let me look at my LinkedIn. I also did a voiceover for like a year from November 2013 to November 2014. And then I was a community manager for like a year and a half uh, wow. leading into 2016, living in Jersey. Uh, and then I got the opportunity talk about friggin' luck, man. Like uh, then I got the opportunity to 
from Jeremy Blum. He reached out to me and he said, look, uh, we like what we're, you're working with us and everything. We're modders. We worked remotely. We, we did our work through Skype chats, dude. Like we released that game <laughs> through stuff like that. That was the era. There was no Slack. There was no Discord. Right. right. Uh, we, it was, it was crazy, honestly. But basically, uh, he said, uh, we did all this remotely working from Jersey, working from wherever he, I met him up with him in New York city. Like we had an office in New York city briefly, I guess, but it was just a few of us. And he said, we have all these European team members. So we're opening up a studio in Amsterdam. Do you want to move to Europe? And I thought, I can't say no to that, man. <laughs> like, yeah, had, seriously, had, that's, no. that's an experience that, yeah, I can't imagine somebody ever saying no to something like that. You're like, Oh uh, yeah. I want to go to Amsterdam. No, Hell yeah. No more, no mortgage, no dog anymore. No, uh, no girlfriend. No, there were no re There was no reason not to. And I wanted to kind of get away from a family situation too. That was uh, that was. Did your difficult. dad beat you? So, no, my, my parents were getting separated at the time. Basically. Oh, dude. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It was Patrick. Patrick He's like, I'm, I'm 25. My dad still beats me. Fucking. It was. Uh, it was just one of those situations where it's like a lot of things in my life changed all at once. You know, to be. I'll just be totally yeah, candid sure. here. I guess. So. Yeah. Been they were, yeah. It was that sucks, man. That sucks. I don't care if you're you're 15 or you're 30. Like that, anybody when your your parents go through shit like yeah. that, it sucks. It's like until like, you're like I don't want to be around for this. You guys, let me know how it turns out. Especially as a full yeah. grown adult, you're just like take care of your stuff. You know, it, let me it's know something that I yeah, it's something that I'd be curious to hear from you guys about actually because like this at that time. <laughs> One of my Marine friends called it my artistic deployment because I ended up being in Amsterdam for like three years. And <laughs> I think what it, when I came back, it was like, well, this is a whole other topic. But basically, it's really tough to leave everybody and your home behind, especially when things are sensitive. And they were. Like the reality yep. of my family situation was just that. And it's got its own special idiosyncrasies or whatever when you're an only child and when you are graduated and finally launching but like instead of having the chance to rebuild all those relationships and continue the relationships with my friends that live in the area i just had i left because it was too good of a thing to say no to and too interesting of an experience and then coming back man like it was tough to build some of those i'll, I'll be honest man like it was very tough to maintain and tough to rebuild some of the new relationships i had to build with my family yeah i bet so how um, you know we could relate to going overseas man and I think for anyone that's spent any time overseas, like when you finally leave, especially in your 20s, I'll never forget my first my first country was Okinawa. <laughs> and the first time I walked by myself on a foreign soil in an area and a language that I did not understand was it's you'll never forget that moment. So how was that landing, you know, getting on the plane, flying, landing in Amsterdam? Like, I can, do you recall how that was for you at all? Those first few months? Yeah, it was very, um, it felt very go, go, go. Like I had a lot of, I had to like figure things out. Like yeah. now Amsterdam was, I feel, I almost feel silly saying this to both of you because you guys were fully and deeply immersed in a totally different culture. I was in like a Western city where everybody, almost everybody spoke English and I had a salaried job and I could go home after work and all these things. So, so I, I, how much... How much did the company assist you with that transition from the states to moving to Amsterdam? They, they helped. They it wasn't one of those things where it's like we're gonna 
give you this much money. To, they said, like, we're going to pay you a good wage. And they did. They paid me fine uh, enough to live here. They pay, I got paid in euros. Like, it was, they, they like, the work visa, all that stuff happened. All that was great. And, uh, and then they bought me a bike. Uh, they did do that. That was awesome. <laughs> That's where I developed my affinity for biking. I knew how to ride a bike, of, of course. Uh, well, I mean, not of course. You know, some people don't know how. I did know yeah. how to ride a bike. And but un unlike America, in the sense of truly commuting on a bike. Yeah. Oh, yeah. It was awesome. Very different. I, Very I different. saw some yeah. funny shit, too, dude. Like, people, <laughs> like, there, there was, um, and I like this. I, I don't think it's realistic in America because of our size and just what we've already built, which kind of sucks. But, like, they had an awesome infrastructure for it. There were, there were lanes that were blocked off by uh, street, like, cement, basically, like a divider. And there were traffic lights just for bikes. So you would see people commuting. They'd be in, and the Dutch dress excellent. They have great taste in Amsterdam, which I guess makes sense. Uh, but I would see things like the, the uh, road rage, but through biking. It was always pretty fun. Like I saw a guy, it's a, it's a firm memory near Dam Square of a guy come, coming out on his bike. And uh, you would have kids that you would bring with you on your bike if you were a parent. And you would put them in this like bin in the front or in the back. So there's like a kid in the bin and the kid's like small and looking <laughs> around in the bin. And he's... Uh, and I think a car almost hit the guy or like didn't yield. You always have to yield to the bikes, I think is the rule. And so he's like yelling at the guy in Dutch, like shaking his fist and pointing. And there's like a little, and he's on a bike with a bell. And uh, there's a little kid in the front looking around like, what's going on? And that to me as an American, which is funny because I associate bikes with like leisure and, uh, you know, uh, hanging out and just like uh, easy going stuff. But now I'm seeing road rage on a bike. So there, there's a lot of those moments. Yeah. I'm imagining a little Yoda-like kid, like looking up. On the, like I got a, like a man. E.T. Yeah, it was a little bit like the, it was a little bit like that. Yeah, because there were huge bins. Because sometimes you'd put like three kids in the front of your bike. Not an exaggeration. Holy three children. Shit. Nobody's wearing helmets. Nobody wore a fucking helmet. It was. I should have worn a helmet. It was not smart that I didn't do that. But uh, I don't know. I just got used to it because nobody else was wearing them. Uh, but did you die? Did you? Die? I didn't. I didn't die. I had one moment where. It was, I was coming down, I was coming down like a, it, it did snow there, you know, and it rained a yeah. lot, but, um, I was coming down a hill on one, over one of the canals, uh, toward Dam square and it was really slippery. So my bike just, it just completely left me on the way down the hill. And I kind of like jumped, I didn't like jump up a bit. I guess I just leaned or something and the bike just like left and then it just like, it didn't get totaled, but it like got real fucked up and then slid down the hill. But I just kind of landed and I was just standing there and I looked down at all this like hard cobblestone old streets and everybody looked up at me and I was on top of the canal hill and I was like, just, I didn't know what to do. <laughs> and, uh, I think if I, if I fell off there, I probably would have fucked myself up a bit. I do know one girl who got hit by a car and fucked herself up a bit. So it's definitely not like, yeah, it's not very really safe, but for some reason we all didn't wear helmets. I, I shouldn't have, I should have worn a helmet. So how were you, you know, obviously a lot of Yanks go over there. How, how was your reception uh, with the, the locals, man? Like, how did they enjoy having you there? Uh, pretty, pretty, they were very welcoming. They spoke good English. I was curious about them because I was yeah. a newcomer. They were curious about me. For the most part, it was like pretty, it was pretty nice. Just like learning about people from a different culture that want to learn and want to share. And, you know, like, one of my biggest lessons from that experience was like, I think um, 
as far as cultural differences go, I feel like a bigger divider than than different countries is the divider between urban versus rural. Because yeah. even though I was like a, I was kind of a suburban kid, right, growing up in Jersey, but uh, but I still like was near Philly. I was near New York. I wasn't like a, I wasn't a rural kind of person. So when I went to Amsterdam, I found I could relate to people pretty easily there. Uh, I think for that reason, and that just plus they spoke English and everything. But it was funny though. Because sometimes the connections that they had to me were so like specific that it like took me off a bit. Like every time I ever said like, oh, I'm an American, you know, they, they had all their own ideas of what an American's like and that's fine. Uh, but then if I said I was from Jersey, their eyes might light up and they would go, oh, you mean like the Jersey Shore? Or, oh, you mean like the Sopranos? And I'm like, uh, not like that really. <laughs> but those are the two shows I heard about all the time. From people really? in Amsterdam. <laughs> yeah, those two. It was like rarely anything else. And uh, yeah, but that was um, so, not like they so thought you, I was going to be good. Yeah. So did you have, you had like the back to the video game stuff, you had the team from that studio that worked there and you were obviously working with, did you have any other uh, Americans or anybody else that was brought in from overseas to sort of work with that team on, on site there? I think I was the only American aside from Jeremy oh, wow. Blum who wasn't there the whole time. We had a few Dutch people. We had uh, Jeremy Falcon Prey, uh, the guy whom I spoke that I got hired at the same time, Underhill. He's French. There, were, there was at least one Canadian, at least one Australian, at least one Brazilian. Oh, wow. Yeah, it was pretty, it was pretty multinational, which I liked because growing up as a kid That's playing very games, cool, yeah. I, I got to play a lot of games online and I got to meeting people from other cultures. It, it wasn't very diverse as far as gender or race goes. I think that was something we we didn't do, you know, we didn't do a great job at. Like we we didn't have uh, that level of diversity. But as far as nationality and like parts of all over the world, it was pretty diverse. It was cool. Yeah. That's very cool. And how, how long were you there? Three years. Three years. Three years. And, so uh, did, and did you start off initially? So you went there specifically to work. What was it specifically voice stuff? I would assume that you probably expanded your repertoire of skills. Exactly. Yeah. I, it became, uh, I was the community manager at the time. We were starting to make Insurgency Sandstorm. And then we were also making a World War II shooter called Dave Infamy. Yeah. The, the needs of the project dictated my role, right? So Dave Infamy was a World War II game. I couldn't just be all the voices again. So I became the voiceover director and the writer. So I was finding actors, directing them, doing all that kind of thing. And then I also uh, eventually, after some of that, became the uh, lead game designer on Insurgency Sandstorm. And there were a lot of different pieces to how that came about. But essentially, I showed an interest and I, I fucked up my voice a little bit, too, which made me realize, like, I don't think I can rely on this uh, for my career anyway. And I was already, like, moving away from the voiceover side anyway. Yeah, so was was Day of Infamy, um, was that grassroots? Was that like a brand new thing when, when you got on with that? Yeah, I was there from the beginning. Uh, basically um, what happened is we wanted to, just like when I was a kid playing Day of Defeat, a Half-Life 1 multiplayer mod, we kind of wanted to make a, a love letter to that game. And we got a license to use the Source Engine from Valve, and who made Half-Life and made the mm -hmm. Day of Defeat remake. Um, we decided to call it Day of Infamy, also World War II reference, kind of a similar name. And it started with, I think we were trying to mod, 
I forget exactly how it happened, but it involved getting our modding community to contribute. Excuse me. So we ended up hiring like certain people that were modding insurgency. I think we kicked things off. We made a, a workshop mod. Steam Workshop lets you just like download modifications to a game. We made the mod ourselves, if I'm remembering right. And then we said to our community, hey, help us develop this. We want to make a World War II inspired insurgency style game uh, on this same engine that we just built a game on. Help us. And yeah, it was a cool project. It, it kind of sucked because it came out on the exact same day, I think, as PUBG. So you can imagine oh, how well yeah. that did for us. Yeah. But, uh, yeah. But yeah, it was a lot of heart went into that game. A lot of uh, a lot of good stuff that I'm proud of and that our team was proud of. Yeah, we had a great team. It was just kind of on an older engine. Came out at the same time as PUBG. And I'm pretty sure it was the exact day, even. But it was also, um, yeah, I don't know, a little dated. People don't seem to, in my read of the situation, people get more excited nowadays and back then by modern shooters than World War II and historical things. Yeah, it's more relatable, right? So, yeah. Yeah, more relatable. We can get into that. I've got some ideas on the World War II stuff. I don't think it's ever dead. I think it could be done differently. But uh, yeah, man. So, uh, Insurgency Sandstorm, um, Day Infamy, you know, three years. So, you know, they let you know, like, hey, it's, it's, it's ending and you're going back to the States. Like, what was next? Did you continue on with these projects, but just back in the States? Or did you go on to something else after, after those two? There, there was kind of a, a shift. At some point in Amsterdam, there was a shift where I demonstrated that I didn't just want to write and do voiceover direction and community mm -hmm. stuff. I wanted to get into design. So I talked to Jeremy Blum. We figured out, like, what that would look like, talked to the rest of the people in the team in, in the office. And there were other people that were remote, too, by the way. It wasn't, like, all of us in the office. Uh, and some of them were Americans. But, um, but in the office, it was, yeah, something that he and I talked about. And then I got involved in design. That's where I think I found my, my passion as far as the career I, I wanted to work in. And in finding that passion, I thought to myself, okay, I want to I wanna stick with this. I want to gain experience. I want to keep being a designer. And I want to work on games that I truly like as a gamer and a player really love and, and like. But it got to a point where we, we released Sandstorm. And for various reasons, a lot of which I wasn't even privy to, we decided to open up a new studio. And this time it was going to be in Canada. Uh, in Calgary, if you guys know Calgary, uh, down in, uh, in the West, Alberta, they, uh, they decided to open up a studio there. There was some uh, ambivalence as far as some people didn't want to move there. There were people that we lost because this was a big move. But it also, from what I understand, it made sense to do Canada because of the costs that we were trying to save. This is kind of my interpretation. I'm not like fully aware and I can't speak to that. It's just my opinion, but I think it was a cost thing. And also I think the immigration there was easier than say the United mm -hmm. States. And we just, we wanted to get everybody, everybody central. Cause at the time we had some people in Amsterdam, some people in Denver and Colorado, and then other people spread all around the world. So it was like a hybrid, hybrid sort of remote deal. Maybe not yeah. hybrid, but you know what I'm saying? People were all yeah. over the place. The we were time like, what year was this? What year was this? It's been 2019 because, yeah, 2019, because Sandstorm came out in December 2018. And then we, you know, we were happy, we were excited. It came out. What a stress, what a project, man. I'll tell you. What a, <laughs> a it, that game shouldn't exist. Like that, that, the team really did an excellent job. Every time you play Sandstorm, fucking talk about blood, sweat, and tears, man. It was, uh, I'm, I'm really happy 
that I got to contribute to a project like that, man. It was a, it was a big deal. But did, did, I remember one time you telling us that Rudy Rudy Reyes had some uh, voice stuff on there. Is that is that correct? Or am I think about something else? Oh no, I think that might be something else. I, I remember Rudy from Generation Kill, but yeah, no, I've heard Rudy's voice on a couple other things. I think that was we me were talking about. Yeah, the three of us were talking about something one time, and you're like, "Oh yeah, he was on this," and I, I. I could have swore that you had said it was, it was insurgency sandstorm, but maybe oh, okay. it was. I wish, yeah. I wish maybe I could have grabbed him Arma or or somebody else. Might have been even Jason that told me that. Was it Arma? I, I'm not sure, but I've heard his voice. Uh, was it Call of Duty? Maybe. No, because I know he did. I, I know he did Call of Duty stuff. But he's okay. a, he's a, his character's still in Call of Duty as Reyes. Um, it's pretty weird getting killed by my own teammate uh, <laughs> in a video game. But, uh, yeah, I don't know what game it was, man. Uh, it might have been – I heard him yelling for, like, reload and ammunition and, like, you know, he's got a higher yeah, – yeah, yeah. under stress, so and not in a bad way. It's just unique to him. So it doesn't matter, man. But, uh, yeah. yeah. Go ahead. I, I, so remember, from- I remember playing In Search of Sandstorm as a, from a veteran's perspective. And this is kudos to you and your team. I'm going to punch myself for saying kudos. I can't believe that it even came out. Because we, we've That's talked okay. about that on our channel. We talked about that on Savage Actual. Yeah. We've talked about Insurgency Sandstorm a bunch of times. And the one guy, Karma Cut, that's a huge Insurgency yeah. player and Arma. And I think that was – maybe it was just Jason and I had that conversation at one point. And Jason's like, I think that sounds like fucking Rudy. But yeah, yeah. But it's just, it was just he, so he, visually well done. Uh, oh yeah, Such know, the, a good the, the maps. The, it was it was just one of those games, you know, on the realism side, that that was pretty dope. Thanks, so, man. I, I appreciate it, that. It was. I'm a picky yeah. son of a bitch. So. <laughs> but, uh, so I know you're being genuine. Yeah. No. Yeah, I, oh yeah. I I'll tell you straight up, if it sucks. Yeah. It was great. Yeah. I, I really. Um, yeah, I appreciate that, man. My, my my involvement in that project was was the lead game designer, so I was designing all kinds of systems and, and game modes and all kinds of stuff up to release. From, from inception, uh, I don't think I was the designer at the very start of the project, but for like the bulk of it, and then definitely for post-release, where I just took on even more responsibility as far as, I would say, bordering on creative direction, if not explicitly that, and then live ops stuff. There, there's just a lot to do, but I also did a lot of the all the writing and the, the voiceover, thousands of lines of dialogue. Uh, we worked with the, the talent agency to cast everybody. And when you say that, Patrick, I think to myself, man, that would have been fucking cool to work with Rudy. I feel like he would have done a good job. And it's um, so this is specifically the what you to back up just a little bit when you're like, hey, I was lead game designer on Insurgency Standstorm. What is what is what is that? specifically mean like what what are the sort of things that are in your wheelhouse or in that job description that you're required to do if somebody's listening to this and they're just like i love video games i'd love to be a game designer what are you required to do as a game designer yeah it's a great question i think the the best way to answer that is always with a preamble of and you'll probably hear this from other game developers it does depend on your team uh, roles will mean a bunch of different things, but I can talk about like what I did, and that's probably the best situation is just to be specific. So one of the aspects I did that I think most people would agree on was narrative design, which would be, again, like the, the writing of stuff, deciding 
okay, uh, there's going to be voiceover in the game. Great. How does that work? Uh, when do characters speak? What's the trigger? And how many different variations? That's like, I think, what a voiceover designer or a narrative designer would decide. Even if there's not like a story to the game, that probably falls under the purview of like a narrative designer because it involves writing dialogue and that kind of thing. So that's one piece. Then there's like a system designer. A systems designer would be someone who's dealing with something like a customization or economy. Or something. You could have an economy designer too, but like the, the customization system in Sandstorm was something where we knew, okay, we want people to be able to unlock clothing and helmets and stuff and then put them on. And then that, like, how, what does that look like? A designer's job is to figure out what does that look like? So that was something I did. I'm like, well, we should have a head slot. We should have an eyewear slot, a facewear slot. That's like a designer has to decide the rules of, of the video game. They have to figure out how do all these pieces fit together? Uh, how are they presented to the player? And there's, there's like, there's a lot of different pieces to that, like what that can mean. But I'd say like in a nutshell, that's probably what a designer does. And those are just a couple examples of like what I did in that position. Gotcha. Interesting. Hmm. Yeah, good question, man. Yeah. And, there, and to be clear, like, this is another important aspect. I wasn't just the only guy doing design, right? Like, we had engineers that were also designers. We called them uh, te technical designers is one of the terms we used at one point, where, yeah, I'm an engineer, like, I'm going to write this code, I'm going to get this working, but I also, like, want to design my own stuff. So I would work with, for example, like, uh, one, of our, one of our programmers, he was making AI for our new uh, our frenzy mode that was a mode that i really enjoyed working with him on which is kind of like a zombies inspired arcadey sort of mode and he and i were talking about like new enemy types to make and stuff like that so he was the one he was doing all the ai design right of like what are they going to do how are they going to react and then also just like brainstorming enemy types together like he he had a lot of ownership of something like that there was a ui designer that i worked with that he and i kind of collaborated to figure out how do we present ammunition on the screen uh, how do you know, how should a hardcore game show you how many bullets you have? We don't want to just say 30 rounds right here. You magically always know. We want to have some sort of sort of vague representation. Of what does that look like? That's that's designed too. And so everybody contributed oh, yeah. in all those different ways. And it was me, Jeremy Falcon Prey, and Jeremy Blum working together to do all that stuff. So Interesting. It's, that, it's oh, kind of vague and depends on the team, but like that's the, the most yeah. I can think to put it. Yeah. yeah, it's interesting because it's it's. I mean, that's the thing is like, you and Jason are super heavy into gaming. I mean, I know you guys play probably freaking every day, and I, I don't play a ton, um, but it, it is. I enjoy it, and I don't have this multitude of experience. But it is like sitting here thinking about this. It is, you know, there's so many subtle changes from one game to the next. How things are presented and. You know, just thinking about when I seen, uh, you know, Ghost Recon or whatever the case may be, all these other different shooters and how they present different aspects of what's happening during gameplay and what you can see and what you can't see, the different types of heads up stuff. So, yeah, it is. Uh, I mean, I man, it's just infinite the yeah. amount of different things that you could potentially come up with as the designer and what would be your responsibility for making that game you know, <laughs> successful or not successful, I guess. So yeah, Jesus it's, Christ. It's crazy. Wow. It's, it's very, and I, I'm sure there's other media like this. Like I think in film, we tend to attribute a lot to the director or the writer, yep. or the cinematographer, 
but like it's a collaborative effort, right? And it's just the same in games. It, it might even be more so in games. I don't really know. For sure, but I would think was, so. Yeah, yeah. It was it was very. It's a collaborative art. You have a lot of different personalities. You have a lot of different people who, to them, like this is what a fun video game is like. Uh, you got to like have your vision, but you also got to be flexible and hear others. And you know, be, being a jumping straight into like the that aspect of design, going from like being essentially a narrative designer slash writer. And then eventually going to lead game designer on a team where everybody's doing design it was a great challenge for me in my career like learning to figure out how do we delegate all this like how do we do it how do we figure this out all on a new engine by the way and lots of other challenges there but but i think um the, the best way this might sound like an agreeable statement uh, that's obvious but it's true like the best way to do it is to collaborate it's, it's to it's to get everybody involved and i think that's why we were so successful on sandstorm is because we were willing to we all had we all cared about the game we all liked it we knew what it was supposed to be and yeah there were some parts where like we might have lacked a little bit here or there uh, but other people compensated for that so just classic yeah. team effort shit which you guys know all about right in your careers so yeah, yeah. So, so speaking of the collaboration here you know okay we're going to start this project with this many people and people come and go potentially bring on more people as it develops um and you've got like a, a ballpark you know on the calendar, you know, like hopefully we're going to be done around here. And then that like yeah. shot, shot group starts to tighten up a little bit. Like, damn, we're going to, you know, potentially re release this, say Starfield September 6th. Okay. September 6th, it's coming. Right. So nerd. Yeah. Right. I'm excited. <laughs> it's but, uh, a nerd for, <laughs> yeah, I'm excited, dude. I'm like, I was I was messing with him about his fucking space shit. He's like, yeah, like, okay, my, let's talk about the fucking. I'm uh, like, okay, Captain Kirk, whatever. Heaven, heaven forbid, Patrick, that Jason looks to the stars and thinks what can be. Heaven it's forbid. Not, I would for sure be the space force if I was 18 right now. But <laughs> oh my god, okay, Leonard. So, uh, <laughs> you know, are you guys, especially if you're all co-located in the same area? you know, like you were in, in, in Calgary. Um, is there like a fucking party? Is there like a release party? Are you guys all at dinner? Like you all drinking drinks and then like on say <laughs> come, comes out on steam, like, okay, it's dropping here. Now you're looking at the analytics. How many people are buying this per hour per day? You know, like what's, what's that build up? I'd say a week to two weeks prior and then release day. And then like two weeks to a month after for, for the team. I, I'm so deeply proud of, of that team, man, because like we, we, we were in Amsterdam when we did the proper release and just I want to name names, but I don't know if they'd, they'd mind. So I'll just say like everybody, man, like not just in Amsterdam, but all over that team, like they did such a great job. Obviously, I'm going to advocate for the people with whom I worked and everybody's going to speak well of of a, a team like that that did such a project. But like I was so happy and and, and proud of them. Uh, I, I was I was so I was so pleased with like how it came out. Uh, I was so pleased for the opportunity, all those things. And there were some people that just really, whew, I just can't even begin to tell you the stories and like the stress and like just how, <laughs> how uh, challenging it was and, and confusing. I, I remember, I remember coming, I remember having a day like where people left the studio and I was trying to figure something out and I just started like tearing up alone in the office. I'm like, why am I upset? Like, this is stressful, but like, aren't I making fun toys for people? Like, why is this so difficult? <laughs> yeah. And it's kind of true, man. It's art. Like it's very, 
difficult. I, it's it's kind of a mystery. So when you have that release, man, it's like it's just something else. I'll tell you, like, okay. and, and in a sense, we couldn't even like think about it because I when I you're asking about release, and when I think about Sandstorm release, I think about lugging my friggin' desk out of my in my home in Amsterdam on a crowded street in the Jordan, uh, not that crowded, but I was trying to like we couldn't. I had to do a live stream, like to be like, "Hey, everybody, the game's out! Like, come play! Like, check it out! Let's play together!" But like, the internet wasn't fucking working at the office or something, and I was like, "Of all the fucking things to happen, it had to be today." And like, for some reason, like that, I remember going home. I remember r- riding my bike fast home. Even I think I don't remember exactly, but like, to set up my setup in my apartment at home not in the office in Amsterdam and doing a live stream from there and like stretching cables to try to fit it through the under my underside of my door and shit to get a good connection. So like, in a sense, there wasn't like, we definitely celebrated. I remember we, we went out to like a Brazilian steakhouse. It was awesome. And uh, yes. the day of dude, like there was no time. <laughs> like it was, it was a uh, pretty, um, I don't know, balls to the wall. That that kind yeah. of deal where there's just a lot going on and of course things fail but we all did a great job like I remember yeah we were we were stressed but like we did a good job I'm just so happy you know I I, I wish nothing but the best for all those people that I that I worked with because I don't work with them anymore you know but but I keep in touch with them of course and yeah we we definitely celebrated and then it was a I guess you could even say a kind of magical experience overall man nice you know, it's 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 strikes me that the game industry is very similar and when i get to the end of this i think jason's going to kind of agree with me that that the gaming industry is very much sort of like a platoon when you're on active duty especially like in a special operations community you fucking you you go you work your asses off. everybody gets get put together you work your asses off you fucking deploy you get home and then Dudes will get orders, different places. Everybody takes off. You go different places and, you know, now you've got all these buddies that are in the winds that, you know, they've get orders to different places or in their different teams or whatever the case may be, but you, everybody stays in touch. It strikes me as, as very much like that a little bit. Like, hey, I just finished Insurgency Sandstorm and now I'm moving on to the next thing. Is like, do a lot of those guys leave the company and... and go to different projects or whatever the case may be. Cause it, I mean, you said you spent three years in Amsterdam working on this and you were there until the end. It's like, after that, you know, you went to Calgary, how many people still kind of stuck around or is it like that? Does everybody kind of take off? Good question. I, I, that is a good question. Yeah, I, I do. I'm kind of smiling here. Cause like, I think a platoon's about 32 people, us Marine platoon, right? Because that was like kind of our team size. So your parallel might be accurate in more than one way. I think we were like 30 to 45, 50 people to, from the beginning to the end, somewhere in that window. And yeah, we were all like not, most of us were not from there. You know, we all came there to do something together. And, you know, just, I mean, obviously there's some huge differences. It's not a, it's not something that I can even compare to your experience, of course, or either of your experiences, no doubt. But, but um, yeah, it was it was cool in that regard. And the, the, the piece that you're describing about people kind of moving on to the next thing is true. Cause there are people I worked with, I'm thinking of them right now and some I I've kept in touch with some, I haven't, and I'm thinking like, I want to reach out to them. I, I would say a decent amount of people. I'm, I'm, I'm thinking of the office in my head in Amsterdam, a decent amount of those people came to Canada 
uh, they were willing to, they wanted to, but not everybody. So some people we did say goodbye to, and you know we, uh, and that was that. Like it, it's tough, but from what I understand from my military friends, that part's pretty common. Is like you don't keep in touch as much as you wanted to at the time. Yeah, but that's kind of okay because just kind of how it goes. You know, they they still right. meant a lot to you, and and it's probably it's probably mutual. So. You're making me want to reach out to some people when you ask that question. <laughs> so here's, here's another thing. I, I, it's funny. I'm really, I mean, cause this is, that's, that's my life experience is the, is that sort of thing. And I, and I'm thinking about it's such a big project. It, it strikes me as just creating something like one of these games is such a massive project that like, do you guys first day, did you sit down and like, Hey guys, we've got, this is our budget. This is our release date. And you sort of do you do sort of release. I, we uh, do a lot called reverse planning, where we like, hey, this is where this fucking ends, and this is where we're you know we know on this day this game is coming out, so we're sort of moving forward to that. But you do almost a reverse sort of planning cycle, and as you guys are going through that, like at fifty percent of the way through, you're like, hey, we should be here, but we are not there, and we've already spent. You know, sixty percent of the money uh, is is stuff like that going on. I mean, I can't even. What did what did it cost to make? Can you tell us what it cost to make Insurgency Sandstorm? Or I, I can't estimated amount. I, I can't say that, and it's not even for a reason of like, oh, that's private information. It's just like I don't fully know the costs. I know costs here or there, but uh, even what I know, like I wouldn't want to misrepresent or like get it wrong. So I so I can't say fully that, but I can tell you that the other piece of what you're asking. I feel like it's like 110% true, man. Like you make a plan, but you got to adapt, dude. Like stuff changes. It's it's just like any organization of humans trying to achieve a specific goal. Uh, it's It takes time. You end up needing to shift things around and it, you make really tough decisions. I'm, I'm the, the thing that comes to mind the most is like, in terms of Samsung, I was supposed to have a story mode. You know, I was writing for the story mode and I was doing some stuff that I was really proud of and we'll just probably never see the light of day honestly that was uh that's my opinion i'm not saying i i don't work for new world interactive i don't represent them by the way anybody listening but uh, that was uh there was definitely work that you do in game development that could never see the light of day and that uh that aspect of it is because of what you're describing which is you make a plan but sometimes it doesn't work out and you go shit guys we got a release let's do this instead can we all get on board with this and you know what? Sometimes it doesn't happen. Sometimes you can't get everyone on board. You lose money and you get shut down. Yeah. yeah. Well, we, we kind of we understand that. But what, it was funny because we talked to Peter from Victoria Studios a couple weeks ago. And he was like, yeah. He's like, I've worked on entire games that just were so far over budget. And they just the whole thing just got shut down and was never finished. You're just like, wow. Yeah. You know, it's crazy that you go so far down that path and it just doesn't come to fruition. The, the amount of yeah. skin in the game that that is there, because I mean, it's like it's like to me, it's like you're building. It's like construction. You're building a, a building, a start and an end. And but at the same time, it's like you're gonna gamble. Same, this building's gonna have fucking art. People gotta want to come to it. And how long are they gonna fucking stay there? You know, is it a wham and bam, and then like you get mostly negative reviews on steam and it's fucking that's it so like on that note man so like 
how it's got a I would take it personal um obviously you put all that time and effort away from family and x y and z into a game and then it releases like do you as an individual stay away veer away from reading comments of the game do you stay off the fucking <laughs> steam comments or, or you kind of hear it from other co-workers like oh man we're getting really good reviews and then you dig into it you know what i'm saying so how do you take that as someone behind the scenes and when it hits it's like how's it going <laughs> that's a that's a great question man like i i think the, the short answer is i did i do read the comments because i i want to and for a part of my career like that was my job I consider it my job, of course, as a community manager, like I got to read the comments. I got to know people. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Even if they're being toxic, even if the people commenting like have some like awful beliefs, you know, there's some people that you obviously you can read something and be like, all right, that's spam or you're a a fucking racist. Get out of here. That's that. Those people you can ignore. But people who are giving feedback, even if it's extremely rude or extremely toxic, I would make myself read it. But then I would also like do the healthy bitching to my coworkers or whatever. <laughs> say like, can you believe if only this guy knew that right. X Y Z, then I bet he would change his tone. But but then again, it, it was my job as a community manager, and, and to be honest with you, like as a as a designer at any stage of my career, as a designer, uh, I feel like I need to do that stuff because you got to be connected to what people are saying. It's it's like anything in life; it's a balance. You got to know your vision. But you also got to know what people are thinking and you got to hear them out. I, I definitely had to have a lot of situations where I'm like, okay, my ego wants to tell this person to piss off. But first of all, I would never do that. So I'm professional. I, I might think that and let it go as a, as a little self vent. But also, like, even if they're being shitty, man, they might have a point. You, so you better listen. I would say, I remember at least once being the fucking spoil sport in the office or some people were complaining about some community feedback and i said all right i hear you guys yeah but like we do have to hear that stuff like let's try to take it seriously at least at least the part that was criticism uh now i'm not saying i wasn't on their side more than once there were definitely times where i was like god this guy's a fucking moron if if only he knew how (laughs) dumb he was being he would understand and apologize right away to all of us individually via email in individualized (laughs) way because that's how stupid he is being with what he's saying but at the same time, those people are usually, they're just so, they've got their problems, man. That's what they're really doing. They have their lives and their issues, and they're taking it out on you. And at that point, it's like barely criticism. It's barely feedback. But the other guys, even if they're being rude, you got to read it. You got to hear it. That's my philosophy. You just have to digest it healthily and in a balanced way with your vision and, and do surveys, too. Surveys don't, unless they're manipulated somehow, surveys are much better than the fucking steam forum i'll tell you that much that was a big part of my philosophy as far as huh. development goes what, yeah, what that, guns do you guys want to see what game modes what content tell me in a survey D- give me data quantify this yeah. not necessarily just like numbers the, the, the comments can be misleading basically yeah i know and it, it could be a gamer like yourself too you know i read so much about every game that i'm interested in and i read the comments mostly negative and i'm like start reading and some <laughs> some are like oh you know i give it four out of 10 stars, but this is why. And they always do the pros and the cons, right? Some are actually really in depth. And I'm like, that was a great review, man. I mean, truly, I'm like, and they always say like, it could have been, if it would have done this differently, and then you start seeing more people say the same stuff, they're like, you know, they might be onto it. So, and sometimes they're right. But I always wondered, 
enhance us doing this interview is, you know, for the listeners out there that are the consumer, you know, that there are people like yourself, multitudes of people like yourself that are, are behind the scenes making this game and trying to, to create with every ounce of their being something amazing. So, and even within that, I think you probably have your own vision as an individual, but you're still part of a team and the owners of this game that are paying the bills have their vision. And you're just like, I'm going to do what I can. You know, I, I've got my, I've got oh, yeah. my spirit. I got my sphere of influence and I'm going to try to influence as much as I can, but I also know my lane and my left rattle left and right. Yeah. So that, that part, I appreciate you bringing up because that's another piece that I, I think would be especially nice for your viewers to hear. Like, uh, I might be the lead game designer, you know, whatever that means on a team, or somebody might be the director of Starfield, your example, but it's not all up to them, right? And just in a leadership role, there's a billion different pieces and there's the individuals doing their things. I got overridden plenty of times all throughout my career. Uh, and a lot of times I didn't agree. And I thought, this is the way I want to go. Uh, and sometimes I, I think I was right personally. Like I think this was the right way to go and and all that. But other times I was wrong. It's just this is just how humans have to organize themselves. There kind of has to be centralization and a chain of command to some degree. Right. And I've been on. I think I've been on every side. Well, not every side, but like I've been all up and down the rung. I haven't been that high. Like I was. I've never been like at a director level. You know, I haven't been at. Uh, teams that had hundreds of people on them and, and I was responsible for, for all them. But I've been like a decent uh, movement on the, the rungs of, of uh, the chain of command or whatever you want to call it. Mm -hmm. uh, and I was a big chain of command guy. Like there were definitely challenges in my career where I said to myself, all right, I really want this. I feel like it's the right move, but my boss is my boss. And if I resist, I'm destroying things. I am being destructive. I'm being toxic even. So I would, I would never do that. You know, I would state my opinion, let it go. Maybe be a little pushy here or there. Uh, there were instances where I think a little bit of pushiness was okay, as long as it was respectful. And it turned out for the better. Like there's certain things that are in Sandstorm now that if I wasn't a little pushy, I don't know if they would, uh, they would be there still. So what happened when you, you get to Calgary and what, what did you guys start working on then? And how long did you stay in Calgary? Calgary was, wow, what an experience, man. That was uh, <laughs> totally, <laughs> that was, uh, Calgary was, I got there in like November 2019, right before COVID. So here I am in another new country and in this new studio, we're like, finally, we're all in an office together. It's time to work together and do our next thing. And, I, and then COVID, right? Now, and I can't talk too much about like the stuff that we did. Uh, I can say that I didn't only work on Sandstorm, Insurgency, and Day of Infamy in my, in my career and my time at New World. Uh, and that's public. We've said more than once, like we had other projects, other plans, et cetera. So I can't talk too much about that stuff. And yeah, I, I, I can't say any more than that, but I can say that we worked on some other stuff aside from those things. And that was a whole other stories. But as far as like being in Calgary, I sort of shifted into this position eventually where I was pretty focused on Sandstorm. I was working from home now in Canada under quarantine all kinds of interesting stuff there there was an outbreak in my building i remember dealing with and <laughs> it was kind of crazy and there was uh there was a lot of after a lot of different things happened as far as stuff that we were doing that i have to just be vague about 
I was at a point in my career where I was still on Sandstorm post-release in that phase, working on like the, the thematic updates, the, the content, sort of like the creative direction, but also a lot on design where other people on the team uh, moved to different things within the company and I was working on Sandstorm. I basically had like a little more ownership than I did before because we are in a post-release state. And that was all up until I eventually left the company in March 2021. So Calgary, I guess I have to just be vague about to, to a large degree, but that's like the, the best summary as far as my work goes there. Uh, as far as personally, I got to go to Banff. Banff was pretty beautiful, which nice. is like a very mountainous area. Um, but I feel like I didn't get a, an awesome, I feel like I didn't get a good chance at Calgary just because of COVID, man. Like that was the year, right? 2020. Yeah. yeah. That was yeah, the year. I was only there for a year. So we know that you're in the beautiful city of Los Angeles. And uh, did you go from Canada to LA? Was that the was that the next progression? Yep, exactly. I, I left New World Interactive and I joined uh, a, a team called Downpour Interactive, which is making the game Onward, which is like a VR tactical shooter. I was excited by this opportunity. There were a lot of reasons why why I left. Uh, part of it was like, oh, I'm not sure I agree with the direction that New World is going. It's, it's not for me. It doesn't match me. Uh, then there was some other stuff that was more private. And then there was the other side, which is like, hey, I think it's time for me to do something new. Like I'd been at New World Interactive for seven and a half years, doing all these different jobs, learning a lot, working on games that I loved and would play and do play like as a gamer. But it was time to do something new. And I thought, well, I love tactical shooters, but what if I made one in VR, if I contributed to making one in VR? So I joined Downpour Interactive and worked uh, on that team. And then that team got bought by or acquired by Meta, Meta, formerly Facebook. So then all of a sudden, and this was just, it's just funny how life works out, man. Like I'm working for these tiny little indie teams, Underhell, Surgency, Black Mesa. And now I'm at like one of the biggest, most well-known companies on the planet meta doing the same thing but in virtual reality it's just i don't know and now i'm in los angeles which is where i am now and i don't know it's crazy man just how things work out but that that's what kind of i still worked remotely uh, while i was working for meta but i i did come out to la yeah that's that's a trip man if you think about your life so far in in, in the degree you got and the voice acting that took you to you know amsterdam took you to canada you know, now you're in LA in these different projects and these different cultures and people you've met. I mean, you've, it's pretty random how you ended up here, but not random at the same time. You know, that's, that's almost military, like the amount of influence you've gotten from other cultures and whatnot. You know, most Americans don't ever move out of their own state nor their own like county. <laughs> and that's yeah. true. It's kind of sad. It's true. No, it is. It's man. Like um, talking to you guys has been, this is kind of an emotional experience for me too on my end, like summarizing just like what my career and everything's been like, I just, I feel humbled and, and grateful for the opportunities I got. And, and when you point out stuff like that, you're totally right, man. Like I didn't, not everybody gets those chances, man. Like I'm thankful for my mm-hmm. parents and their parents before them and all the things that, that they worked for. Cause I, you know, I, I certainly worked hard and I'm proud of the work that I did, but like, I was also given a lot of great opportunities. Jeremy Blum took a chance with me. Jeremy Falcon Prey took a chance with me and yeah, I got very, 
I just feel very humbled, I guess, and, and lucky because you're right. Not everybody even gets to have a fraction of those experiences I had. And they were hard. And it was challenging, man. Like you guys know, like living abroad, it's, it's not as sexy and cool as it sounds, dude. Like it's, it can be very challenging. And I was in a cushy place and it was still challenging. But yeah. 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 Sure. Never hear so some stories about the- like you mentioned, going from these smaller indie studios and then getting bought up by Meta, what was uh, how long were you at Downpour before the whole Meta transition happened? And, and like, uh, I, I'm sure you guys worked with you know five, ten people, and then or or maybe even less than that, and then going into the whole Meta situation. And what was what was that whole transition like? That was. It was pretty interesting, man, because, and there's certain stuff that, like, I can't go too much into detail on, so I'm, I'm, pardon me if I'm, like, hesitating a bit, but essentially, it was, it was jarring for me because I'd never worked for, like, a big corporation. I guess I could speak the best to my personal experience. Stuff that, on the indie side, and this might seem obvious, but I guess it's worth stating anyway, indie side stuff, it's like, yeah, let's just do that. Sure. Oh, no problem. Why don't we do that? But you can imagine working for Meta just because of its size and like the the accountability to which they they hold themselves and and others and the, the people that they need that they're obliged to do things for, broadly speaking, in terms of like a dozen different things. Stuff just got there's more process. And that was difficult sometimes for sure. That was definitely a time that I guess I felt like in a weird way appreciative of because like I had this indie experience and that was cool. And I got to kind of, it was fast and loose and stuff. But when I joined meta, it's like, Oh, okay. I guess there's certain things that we need to do now. Uh, And I got to meet a lot of people who were like super experienced. Uh, It was also challenging because this is just my experience. Okay. I worked my whole career on like tactical shooters, right. Uh, Kind of a niche audience. So I think I personally, I can't speak for the rest of the team, but I think there were times in my career where interacting with people at Meta, I had to think, okay, these guys don't fully know like what it is to make a tactical shooter. Uh, we have to do our best to explain it and also show the value that this is for to be a video game in VR. And now, were, the, were, the, yeah. were the individuals that you were working with specifically, like did they have meta have like hey this is the meta game division and this is specifically or the the meta vr division and this is you're working with these individuals that like you said they've i don't know maybe they just they're developed games on a broad sort of spectrum that are going to be in that vr you know that that vr space and they just don't really have any have any experience with game development at all I mean, it was, is that sort of how it was? It's, it's kind of, I know that in the, in the, pro, the, what I'm saying is like, I, I, I know, and most people know that, you know, Hey, it was Facebook forever. And then it became meta. And then their big Zuckerberg's big vision was for the VR thing to become this huge deal. And, and I have to assume that's why he started buying up all these other games like downpour and buying up all these other studios that had stuff to do with VR. So were you guys dealing with specifically like, Hey, we're the game division and we're within that we're the VR people. And yes, we've never developed games, but you know, is, is that kind of the stuff that you were dealing with? Yeah, it was, I, I guess the best way I could put it. 
and I know this is a generalized question, but it's kind of true or generalized answer, but I know it's kind of true. It was mixed. Like a lot, of, I think most of my time was spent with my team, right? Like downpour interactive. And we all knew the right. game, of course, and we worked together pretty well. They were very welcoming to me as somebody who joined further into the cycle, dev cycle of the game. I think I forget exactly when Onward hit early access on Steam PC, but it was like 2015, 2016, I want to say. So I was a latecomer to the to the team there and they I interact with them the most. But there were these times where either I personally or like people I was working with would do the interactions with Meta. And my gathering of that was there was a good deal of like needing to explain, well this is kind of what we need as a game studio. Now Meta did have a I think at the time at least, maybe still I'm not sure, they had like the Reality Labs division where they had a bunch of different mm-hmm. teams. And each one of those teams was focusing on, you know, like a different VR, Echo VR, or we were on Onward and all that stuff. But uh, yeah, it was basically what I'm trying to get at here is part of the challenge of going from indie to corporate is dealing with the corporate stuff, right? Like that was, I'm kind of grateful for it because it was just another interesting new part of my career uh, and more for me to learn. Even if it was painful, it was kind of like working in the restaurant <laughs> back in Jersey. Like working in a restaurant is not exactly, for me at least, and I think for most people, it's not like a super happy-go-lucky experience, but it is a good experience to have because you kind of see some things about the way the world works, and now you know, right? And that's, if we were on the earth for, we could think of many reasons why we might want to, what we might want to spend our time doing on the earth, but I want to like see things and experience things, even if they're kind of painful and I'm not saying it was all pain, <laughs> but there were some things that I had to struggle with going from indie to corporate side and right. just had to make it work, man. And it's unfortunate how things shook out because for people who don't know, like uh, Meta did have their big layoffs a few months ago. I was affected by that. I got laid off and so did most of the team. And that sucks. So a lot of what you're hearing now is in the context of that. And while I do think I learned a lot, and I do think that I'm proud of the stuff that I did with that team, I mean, I can't help but be sad, right? That like it all ended like that. And, you know, I just have to put myself in a position where I feel grateful for what I did get out of that experience and accept the challenges, but also the good pieces of it as well, Mm -hmm. if that all makes sense. Does that answer your question? I'm not sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Are are you still sort of, uh, so Onward was obviously the game that you're working on. Do you still sort of keep track of, (laughs) <laughs> what they're doing, like check their Instagram and see see what the progress is. Yeah, because yeah, yeah, because there's still stuff I did that I want to see when it comes out. Because I'm hoping it comes out. I don't. Right. I'll tell you, like I, I don't know. Like I have no connection to you know Meta or Onward aside from like knowing people who are working on that stuff. And there's other stuff I did at Meta that I just can't talk about altogether. Right. But I have kept in touch. Like they put an update out recently. I haven't got a chance to play it yet. But I've seen like, I think I saw like a couple social posts that uh, the community manager with whom I worked, who's still there. And I'm like, hey, I recorded that with you and like stuff like that. It's <laughs> at this point coming. I, I think I saw one that was one we did together, maybe a couple I did. I can't remember, but there's stuff like that. And there's stuff that I know as a game developer, like I did that I'm excited to see come out. But it also just, and this is part of being a game developer, it also might just never come out. You know, it could just go right. away completely. It's, I feel bad for... Yeah, I feel worse for artists, though. I think artists have the shortest end of the stick there because you could have all this stuff that if you put it in your portfolio, it would be 
excellent, beautiful representative of your abilities, diverse, wide range, just like on your demo reel, you want a wide range of voices, you want a wide range of art. But if the project gets canceled and it's all under NDA, nobody can ever see that. Years wow. of work, nobody can ever see. Now, it depends on the studio. It depends on a billion factors. But like, yeah, yeah it, it can that can be a challenge from what I understand on the artist side of things. So now that that chapter's over with, with Meta, you know, you're, you're hunting, man. So like, what do you think this, is there, are you wanting to stay in the same kind of, you know, lead design game development realm, or do you want to explore something else within the gaming realm uh, behind the scenes? You know, is, is there something you haven't done yet that you're looking, looking to do or what's, what's next for you, man? I definitely want to stay. I'm taking a little bit of a break because I, I was pretty much like traveling and working uninterrupted for nine and a half years, almost 10 years, really. So definitely taking a bit of a break, which, you know, you know, because I, I flew out to the East Coast. Basically, I went back to Jersey, Pennsylvania, Maryland, North Carolina, Florida, and saw friends and family because like now's the time. It sucks getting laid off, but like the, you have to take you have to take advantage of it. Right. And I had some savings and like decided, you know what, I'm just going to do this. So I am living a little bit for myself right now, which is nice in a good way. Yeah. Uh, being careful, you know, at the same time, you got to be, stay responsible. But as far as like the next thing goes, I'm doing a little bit of that, but I'm still interested in game development. So specifically still love design, still love creative direction, still love that uh, level, still love tactical shooters, but open the new experiences too. Jason, you know, like I'm a huge survival game fan. <laughs> I'd oh, love yeah. to work on a survival game. I'd love to work on a, an extraction shooter, maybe. Like there's there's all different kinds of games out there, and I'm I'm open to a lot of that stuff. So at this point in my career, I'd say I'm focused on another job in design on a project that I'm passionate about, and that I can have a good team. Like I'd be working with people that I really enjoy working with. Because let's be real, no matter what your profession, that's probably the most important thing, man. Right? Yes. Like yeah, you got to get the money to live but you also gotta have a good team whether it's a restaurant or a video game or the military that's that matters so much 100 percent, man so how does you know our listeners out there that don't know anything about you know they know about an hour and a half of you now how do they how do they find you and especially for you know people connected to the gaming realm that might want to hire a guy like you how do they find you and um get a hold of you man well, I guess they'd have to struggle to spell my, my Greek name in, uh, in LinkedIn <laughs> and try to connect with me. That's T as in Tom, S as in Sam, A-R-O-U-H-A-S, Michael Sarujas. Uh, I'm also on Twitter. I, I like never use Twitter, but uh, if you look up Mikey, M-I-K-E-E underscore V-O, that's my Twitter handle. Uh, feel free to DM me if you're interested in work opportunities or if you just want to drop me a line and say, hey, man, I liked one of the things that you worked on. Like, they mean those comments mean a lot not just to me but to any game developer so even if it's not me you're saying something to reach out to whoever you know and tell them that you like their work because they'll probably appreciate it but yeah i guess you could reach out to me on twitter or uh, add me on linkedin i am looking for work and uh so mike after yeah. after this is done text me your linkedin link yeah. and i'll add that into the description of yeah. the with the the podcast so for gotcha. everybody that's listening if you're getting ready to start a game and you think Mike is the, the man to fill the position, check out the description. There's going to be a link in there for LinkedIn and you can get a hold of Mike through that. 
Thanks, man. I appreciate that. Yeah. And I'm not just here to plug yeah. myself, by the way. I'm here to educate people <laughs> on the game development hey, process. That's our job. Let let Jason and I. Yeah, no, and, that's, uh, that's the benefit of, of having this <laughs> platform, man, is, yes, at the same time, we're going to scratch your back and hopefully uh, catch a big fish. Will it happen? Who knows? Yeah. I don't think we're that important, but it's been fun. No, for so sure. here, here's yeah. here's I got this is probably my final question. So, what do you see as the you've worked in the VR realm? You've worked in the you know your last job was in that sort of big box sort of uh, game company, and you've done all the indie stuff. What do you see sort of as the future of of gaming? Do you think VR gaming is going to get bigger? Going to take things over? Like, what do you think is going to be ten years from now? What do you think is going to be the biggest thing in gaming? Great question. You had to guess. Yeah, it's a really good question, man. Um, I'll I'll give you my best answer, but it'll be. I guess I have to just state first. Like, I'm I'm not a technically minded person. I only worked a little bit in VR, and I've I've been pretty. You know, I've I've worked a bunch of different jobs in in my career. I guess uh, here in gaming, even voiceover, design, community management, writing, whatever. But I also only know what I know. My guess is I, I think VR has a great challenge now where the things are, t- they're very nauseating and they're, very, they're heavy and they get hot. And <laughs> I think that before VR can like get bigger, got to kind of figure that out. Uh, and, and I guess there's, yeah, I'm trying to think about if there's anything I can't say here, but this is all just my opinion. So take it as my opinion. For sure. But like, I just, sure. I just feel like, Fundamentally, those are big problems because some people put those headsets on and they get nauseous, and some people put those headsets on and they they just get fatigued. They're like, "Oh, this is heavy on my face. I don't want to do it." I think for VR to get bigger, there's some technical hurdles that need to be accomplished first. Part of that's from just my opinion. It's from like seeing the content creation space on social media and YouTube and stuff. People saying like, "Hey, I can't really do a lot of VR content uh, because it doesn't." people aren't that interested in it. I think that's indicative of the fact that like it still needs time to grow. That being said, look how long video games have been around since like what, the 80s and before? Before the 80s, yeah. yeah. Yep. Uh, yep. VR has you know, come and gone over the past couple decades, but like this latest iteration might need some time and that's fine. Uh, as far as the future goes beyond that with like outside of VR, I think for at least a fair amount of time, PC console gaming is is here to stay. There's still a lot of interesting things happening there. I think we're going to see fewer really big projects, like less $100 million projects and more $10 million projects, because some $100 million projects have come out and not been super successful, it seems, at least for me as a consumer, looking at the reviews and and the publicly available information. And I think because of that, I think investors are going to, who make a lot of this shit run, by the way, like it's subtle, but it's true. And it's unfortunate to the artistic process, but it's true. Sometimes it's okay for the artistic process, but a lot of times it's a difficult aspect that, that you got to deal with. Um, I think they're going to start going, maybe we shouldn't throw a hundred million here. Let's throw 10 mil here, 10 mil there. That's my limited perspective uh, judgment on it based on what I've heard from other people that are smarter than me and from my read of the situations. Cool. Interesting. Interesting. Yeah, cool. you know, I, I've got actually I got a PS on that because just sure. something that you mentioned about. So AI, what do you think? I'm sure that's got to be a conversation within the realm of I know it is now very heavy within the realm of of TV and movies and all that stuff. How do you think that's going to come into play with 
video game creation. I mean, especially with VO, especially with VO, man. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I, yeah. I, especially with that, with, I mean, it's, it's it, the, the, I, and I think a lot of the stuff that we see as consumers that's available now and I'm, you know, chat GPT or, or whatever the, the du jour thing of the day is, I think that's probably even on the basic level of stuff. I know that there's things that are not available for consumers that are just incredible. You think that's going to, I think that's something that could potentially change the space. Is that something that video game people are talking about? Yeah. The, the context in which I've, I've heard most people talk about that in the context of saying artists, artists uh, feeling like it's unfair that they make all this beautiful art and then AI comes along, sucks <laughs> it all up and then spits out stuff. That's just generatively technically inspired by their work. I think that's, that's the argument I've, I've heard from their side. I, honestly, I'm not too educated in what the controversies are and the opinions around it, but that's what I understand it to be as a part of it. I don't, I don't know what the solution is there, man. Like, I don't know. I definitely see their point. That's their work. It's just, just because an AI is like impersonal, quote unquote. It's not really like somebody made that, but I, I kind of get it. It's kind of impersonal. It, I could see the argument that that's stolen work. Uh, I've heard this in the context of like actors and, and what the, the, the strike right now, like, yeah. I, I I don't know, man. That's wild stuff. I don't really know what's going to happen. There's, but, uh, there's, I, there's, there's some similarities between the fields, right? But I, I definitely see it's more niche for the physical videography capture of, of a human being. The gaming realm is obviously a little bit different. Um, you know, it is art. It is painting or drawing, but just using a different, uh, you know, a different medium. But I see their point in the sense like background actors, right? Like, like they'll, they, they, from what my buddy's a stuntman, I just talked to him two days ago, been a stuntman, Transformers, American Sniper, he's been a stuntman for years. And he was saying, and after he said this, I'm like, damn, dude, I actually side with the strike because as a background actor, what they want to do is take you into the green room and shoot you from all different angles. And then they're going to use your image and images of you forever and they pay you once and that's it. And they're going to, you're going to be in the background of a fucking football stadium. You're going to be in the background on a fucking plane, you know, and it's cutting, especially on a, a ecosystem like LA, it's really a hindrance to the ecosystem of, of Southern California. It's putting food on the tables. And I think there is some correlation and some parallels to the video game realm for sure. Um, you know, with the narrative, right? You know, ChatGPT 3.5. I could prompt it to write me a story on whatever the fuck I tell it to in these parameters. And there's your fucking video game story, dude. You know, that's, I don't know. It, I'm an outsider, I know very little of it. it sounds kind of scary, man. And, and I know very little too, to be clear, which is part of why I say like, yeah, I really don't know. It's fucking scary, dude. Like automation, I think we've known for some years, it's, it's, I think we, it's probably best to like get away from the the judgments of like, oh, is it good or is it bad? I think the judgments need to be more about like, how do we make sure that everybody can still like live healthily and have decent quality of life going yes. into the future right now? And that's like a big political slash geopolitical slash social question. And it's interesting to see it in the context of gaming. And when I look at it, I 
just makes me kind of scared about automation in general, even though I know it's inevitable. We just have to figure out as a human race of like, how are we going to do this? Because I do think it's a bit of a game changer and it's kind of scary. Like I, I feel a bit scared of what's going to happen and what people will do. I've, you know, I've, in my experience, like I've had my work stolen before and it never bothered me because I was doing other stuff. Like I'll be playing a game or watching a YouTube video and I'll hear a, a scream and I'll go, that's me. And it is. I'll look in the credits and they'll say ripped from insurgency or something like that. Now oh, I'm wow. fortunate because I'm not doing that anymore and I don't care. Like it, it doesn't really bother. There's some instances where I do care, but a lot of the times it's like such an amateur thing and they're not making money or if they are, it's so minimal. So I decide to let it go because whatever. Right. Uh, right. Some, I don't always feel that way. That's a different story. But, but um, in that case, the only reason why I'm, or most of the reason why I'm okay with that is because I'm doing a different job now, right? And that's okay. Like, it doesn't interfere with my livelihood. But if that's your job, and if you live in a place where you need that, and now that's taken away from you, like you're saying with your friend, what do you do? You, do you shift careers? Like, it's, it's, it's not a unique problem in human history, but it's one that we got to account for, right? We got to be ready for that and adapt. And that's scary. That any it kind of a, stuff like that is scary. It is a current, it is the next phase in evolution of, humanity in the workforce where we've hit that next rung of like adaption you know it, from when, it, well, when it, you see when you see entertainment stuff when you look at and i remember which movie it was the the it was the specific the star wars one with uh carrie fisher you know she she had died like two or three years before that and they've got her in the movie you know I'm, i don't know how it works if it was just some woman that they had that kind of stood in the place and they were able to map whatever her face and her voice and you know it's like is carrie fisher's family getting paid for this is you know but i mean you've got this actress that's and the same thing that i don't remember what the actor's name is again it was a star wars picture the mon tarkatov or i don't even remember the guy's name he was one of the one of the dudes from the original star wars that they used in another one of the newer latest episodes or whatever. And he was one of the guys with the, with the fucking, uh, you know, with Darth Vader or whatever. But again, this guy had died 15 years ago and they've got him looking the exact same speaking in this movie. And you're like, Holy shit balls, you know? And that's, again, that movie was shot, you know, what, seven, eight, ten years ago. I mean, can you imagine what they're going to do in 10 years from now I mean, and people have talked about it that they'll potentially yep. movies that the entirety of the cast and in the visual and audio is all not real. You know, it's like, I mean, how is that going to, to? I mean, I'm not even in that industry, but to think how that would affect video games and TV and movies, it is kind of crazy. You know, and I don't know. It's it's. At that point, it's like, who's getting paid for this other than the studio, you know? So. Yeah. It's a big and, question, Mark. Sure. Right in the middle, you'd have Kevin Bacon. Yes. <laughs> who's connected to everything. Yeah. He's right in the middle, for sure. Yeah. I'm pretty sure Kevin Bacon was a slick, right, Patrick? For about a week, I think he was, yeah. He was. Did you ever meet him? Did you ever work for him? No, I'm making this up. I'm just fucking around. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, oh, was he? Oh, no. I'm like, no, I was I just being, I was just being silly. 
Okay. Well, you know, you know what? I, I will say one of the funniest pictures I've ever seen, and this is not Kevin Bacon, but this is just sort of the celebrity thing. You, you know, the dude that uh, he was in the, I think it was the Dos Equis commercial, the most interesting man. Yes. yes. Whatever. Yes. Uh, a friend of mine hit fucking, uh, called, hit Bougie is his fucking, he was a, he was a, a, a Sark and he was with an East Coast Raider team. He's got a picture. I think they. I don't know how this happened. I. I've never really asked him about, but I've seen the picture a couple times. It's the dude from the most interesting man alive. That old guy and these dudes. All this Marine Raider team is standing around this guy, and they're clearly like out on a range or a fucking kill house out someplace, and they're all posing with this dude. I'm like, that's one of the fucking coolest pictures I think I've ever seen. It's pretty funny. I haven't seen that one. <laughs> yeah, you got to connect me to that Raider. I know you brought him up before. Yeah. Yeah. Just a picture uh, so, of like peak masculinity, all condensed into yeah, one hundred percent. It's so it's so funny. So, you, Mike, you got anything for us in closing? Like uh, anything that, whatever. And again, we got. I'm going to make sure your LinkedIn is attached to your to the uh, description here. You got anything else for us in closing? No. Yeah. If anybody looking to hire for design, I'm still figuring out my next move. Willing to hear of any uh, different opportunity in design, voiceover, writing. Whatever, or if you just want to say something nice to me, thank you. I, I would appreciate it. Do it for other devs you know. Do it for other people in your life that you know doing nice things. Uh, I'm really grateful for this opportunity. Thank you guys for giving me a chance to sit down here and talk all about my experience. It's been This has been pretty reflective for me. This is a nice thing to do, especially when you get laid off and you're out of work for a bit and you're just thinking about your <laughs> life and your career. It's for real. Like it's a, This is reflective. And yeah, I appreciate the opportunity. And Thank you both. I hope we can hang out and play some video games sometime soon, by the way. That'd be cool. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Absolutely. Garfield. We need to do that. Yeah. No. Garfield. No, it's a I wish. Word. It's a single player, man. Cool. Single player. Okay. We, we did we did pretty good with Modern Warfare, I think. That seemed like a yes, good we need to, we need to, We need to double tap on that again. The, we need to get some more into that. That Dude, was a good time. My, my COD level now is... Oh, you're going to... You're just out there, dude. You're fucking... I see you playing all the time. I, and Dude, I'm... Obsessed. I've never been obsessed with Call of Duty like this before in my life. Like I play D and D. It is. And it still pisses me off every fucking time I play. But you're super good. Now, <laughs> I'm the right? same way. Like, you... I'm the same ways. Are, are you good? Like, are, I mean, I think. Right, hey good. guys, I'm gonna. Okay. Hey Mike, right. thank you very much. This was awesome. Uh, <laughs> and uh, we'll meet you on the uh, Call of Duty fucking side of things very soon. Thank you very See, much. Right on. See you thank you guys so much. Appreciate it, man. Thank you. This has been Savage Actual. Jason and Patrick are two former special operations guys who interview interesting guests who talk about video games, airsoft, and military subjects. Basically, they drink a lot of beer, talk about shooter games, and have fun. What's not to love? We hope you've enjoyed the show. If you did, make sure to like, rate, and review. And the fellas will be back soon. But in the meantime, find them on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, and YouTube at Savage Actual. Y'all be cool, and we'll see you next time.